will fight them to the uttermost. Having behind us the producing masses of this nation and the world, supported by the commercial interests, the laboring interests, and the toilers everywhere, we will answer their demand for a gold standard by saying to them, You shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. Welcome to 10 Minutes on Democracy. That moment of democracy inspiration was William Jennings Bryan giving his famous Cross of Gold speech, often considered one of the best early American political speeches, which helped catapult him to the Democratic Party's presidential nomination. It was delivered in 1896, and Bryan recorded it on audio in 1921, also making it one of the earliest recorded American political speeches. I'm Jason Franklin, it's Tuesday, May 11th, and moving from 1896 to today, it's been a relatively quiet week with fewer major developments on the democracy front. Here at One for Democracy, we're keeping our our eye still on the latest COVID developments, shifts in climate policy and the infrastructure bill moving its way through Congress, as well as the implications of the recent colonial pipeline ransomware attack. But we'll also use this comparatively quiet moment to go a bit more in depth on the latest shifts around voting rights. So on the COVID front, yesterday, the FDA signed off on expanding the use of Pfizer's vaccine for children ages 12 to 15, and the CDC's vaccine advisory panel will meet tomorrow to review the same vaccine usage. They're expected to give uh, a matching recommendation, which could allow shots to begin as early as the end of this week for 12 to 15-year-olds. However, polls are showing parents split almost 50-50 on the idea of getting their children vaccinated which is a major stumbling block in the race to protect middle and high school students before they head back to class in the fall. Another sign of the looming challenges to reach critical vaccination levels is that demand is continuing to fall. And this week, several states, including Wisconsin, Iowa, and North and South Carolina, have asked the federal government to send them fewer vaccine doses. So uh, onward slog on that front. On the climate front, states are continuing to take action in the face of congressional gridlock. Last week, California enacted new requirements to make mega warehouses over 100,000 square foot each slash pollution from trucks that serve their facilities. This is the potential to be precedent setting for the e-commerce industry because many of those warehouses are Amazon and other big shipping spaces and to also speed up the electrification of freight trucks. Meanwhile, in Washington, some Democrats are threatening to hold up President Biden's signature infrastructure plan demanding an elimination on the cap of the state and local tax deduction, also called the SALT tax, highlighting this dance between how to take action on climate and balancing demands to address economic inequality and which types of tax changes can be pushed through. Leading the charge on the SALT tax deduction is the SALT Caucus, a group of U.S. representatives mostly representing wealthy districts in blue states. The challenge is that repealing the SALT cap would really benefit the wealthy. A Brookings study um, that just came out shows that almost all, 96%, um, in fact, of the benefits of repealing the salt cap go to the top fifth of all earners in the country, and over half go to the top 1%. Basically, the salt tax deduction allows you to deduct state and local taxes like property taxes from your federal tax. It's especially valuable for wealthy property owners in coastal democratic states that have high property taxes. Uh, Trump capped the SALT 
deduction at $10,000 and an attack on democratic states in his tax reform bill in 2017. Uh, the challenge is, is that repealing the SALT cap would cost the government almost $600 billion in revenue over nine years, basically negating the benefits of raising the corporate tax rate and putting it really challenged to how to fund the infrastructure plan. So this dance between economic inequality and tax limitations and climate continues. Another dance we're seeing highlighted this week is around what to do about cybersecurity. Uh, cybersecurity burst back into the headlines as the federal government's working with Colonial Pipeline, the Georgia-based company that had to shut down their pipelines, which transports almost 100 million gallons of refined fuel a day, provides 45% of the fuel used on the East Coast after they were a subject to a ransomware attack. That attack is considered the most significant successful attack on U.S. energy infrastructure ever. Initial reports indicated that this could be an attack of an act of cyber warfare, but now it's looking increasingly like a quote normal crime from a ransomware group Darkside, which even issued a statement saying they were apolitical and will screen their ransomware targets in the future to not get into political acts. But what it really brought into light besides the impact on our gas prices is that no company is safe from ransomware and the really blurry lines between crime and cyber warfare and the challenges for democracy to coordinate action among hundreds of countries to prevent these type of global threats. While we're focused on the pandemic right now, the implications of massive cybersecurity, which we've heard about for decades, are getting more and more evident to us. But last and really not least, I just want to take a minute to talk about voting rights. Four more states passed bills limiting voter access after the elections. Joining Republican-backed measures in Georgia, Montana, and Iowa, we see Florida, uh, Texas, Arkansas, and Kansas coming into the act. On Thursday, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida signed a law that restricts absentee ballots and expands a current rule that prohibits outside groups from canvassing close to polling places. Texas passed a similar measure, also expanding the power of partisan poll watchers. In Arkansas, they've shortened the absentee ballot return deadline and are requiring election officials to, quote, comply with directives from the Partisan County Board of Elections, politicizing the process of election administration. And in Kansas, the Republican legislature overrode the Democratic governor's veto to enact two new voter suppressions as well, creating new signature match requirements for mail voting, banning extensions to ballot return deadlines, and limiting community ballot collection, disproportionately disenfranchising disabled, senior, and native voters who live far from the polls. And they also prevented executive or judicial changes to the election laws. As a result of this ongoing march of state-level voter suppression, all eyes are on Democrats in the Senate and their efforts to pass the For the People Act. And people have been asking me why this is so critical. It's because basically, Republicans have been able to push through dozens and are on track to push through dozens more state-level voter suppression. In the midst of redistricting, you're going to see these razor-thin margins in both the House and Senate potentially vanish and flip because we are making our voting system more restrictive and less fair. On the flip side, the For the People Act has the chance to expand the right to vote. 
it would create automatic voter registration nationwide. It would require states to offer 15 days of early voting. It would require more disclosure from political donors. It would restrict partisan gerrymandering, and it would compel states to offer no excuse absentee voting. It would be one of the biggest expansions in the right to vote in decades, but it can only get passed if we see a refinement or adjustment or elimination of the filibuster, and it's gonna be a rocky road there. Republicans are preparing to force Democrats to take dozens of politically difficult votes in the Senate Rules Committee hearing this week, turning what's generally a hours-long process into a several days' worth of grandstanding. They're expected to push over a dozen amendments in an attempt to make hard votes. And during an interview last week on the PBS affiliate KET in Kentucky, Mitch McConnell said, I'm going to do everything I can, and my colleagues are going to do everything we can to prevent it from passing. Uh, critical, even more critical than Mitch McConnell, perhaps, is West Virginia Senator Manchin, who told reporters yesterday that although he hadn't reviewed some of the proposed changes, he is open to supporting the bill. He said, quote, we're looking at everything. We hope there's a pathway there. And we're going to keep watching this through the target that Senate leadership has set to pass this by August. If they do not pass the For the People Act, we expect to see all of these state-level voter suppression bills go into practice, limited effect for the courts to be able to litigate and push back, and really shift the balance of power for years to come. So this is going to be a defining moment of our democracy and our ability to vote. So thanks for joining us to hear this week's quick review of some of the key issues, the latest developments on COVID, climate regulations, positioning around taxes and the infrastructure bill, renewed attention on cybersecurity, and especially our dive into the evolving dynamics of state and federal voting rights legislation. I'm Jason Franklin. It's Tuesday, May 11th, and thanks for joining 10 Minutes on Democracy.